0: We're in the process of wrapping up our journey through Ephesians. It seems like it's been going on for a long time. Uh, We took a break over Christmas uh, for these final three sessions. Um, Paul is uh, diverted or or pivoted um, to begin to talk about relationships. And to understand what Paul is getting at, we need to understand the context in the world around him that he's writing to. Uh, There were very specific cultural rules that were going on in the ancient Near East in the first century at that time. And Paul, in many ways, didn't want to shake things up. He didn't want to change things dramatically. Uh, There was this belief in the early church that Jesus was going to come back at any moment. Like like they were expecting Him tomorrow to show up. And so there was this motivation, this, this, this push to accomplish the call that Jesus gave them, which was to preach the gospel and make disciples to the ends of the earth. So their motivation in many ways was to do whatever it took to get the gospel to advance. And so they weren't looking to overturn culture, so to speak, but they were looking for ways to move through culture to preach the gospel so that more people would come to Christ. And in the midst of all of this, and in the midst of all of this book, there's one theme, and that theme has been sanctification, becoming more like Christ. How, When we come to Jesus, how does He transform us to be whom it is that we were called to be, to who that we were created to be? How are we transformed? And one area that that transformation should occur should be in the midst of our relationships. Remember what He said in Ephesians 5.21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This picture of mutual submission. That as a community, we're submitting to one another to lift each other up as a way to show worship, to show uh, gratefulness, to show reverence to Jesus for what he's done for us. Now last week, we looked at the marriage relationship between husbands and wives. And and Paul was uh, was pretty blunt on it. Wives submit, husbands submit. Lay down your lives as Christ laid down for the church. You should lay your life down for your wife as much. There was this interesting picture that we discussed of Paul putting a higher responsibility on the husbands. And he summarized it all in in verse 33, where he said, However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband." Now today, we're going to look at two other areas of relationships. Um, The relationships you have at home, the relationships you have at work. And and this is going to be an interesting journey. You may end up in a place that you don't necessarily expect. So if you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul writes this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor in their eyes, when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whatever they are, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Lord, we just welcome Your presence here today as we dig into Your Word. Uh, Father, uh, just soften our hearts. Allow us to hear from You. Allow Your Word to come, to pierce us, to to transform us, to grow within us, Lord. Lord, break off any distractions, anything that that, uh, may prevent us from hearing clearly from You. We just invite You here this morning, Lord. We say, come, Lord Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Paul starts off by discussing the relationship between parents and children. Don't you all wish you brought your kids today? Obey. The relationship between a Roman father and his children was extremely uh, different in the first century compared to how we look at it today. A Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them off as slaves. He could make them work in his fields. He could even have them work in chains if he so desired. He could take the law into his own hands and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his children. He had the full right of disposal over their lives, just as he had over slaves or or over other things that he owned. And that was the view of what children were. They were just things until they become became uh, adults actually until the men became adults the male child became adults it is in this context that paul writes that children should obey their parents this is not like a radical concept for this society this was the expected norm but instead of using the culture's understanding he goes back to the old testament and pull something interesting out of the Old Testament. Oh, I didn't mark my Bible this morning. Forgive me. Deuteronomy 6:16. 6, Some of this in Deuteronomy should sound familiar to you, because this is one of the Ten Commandments. You remember those? We don't talk a lot about those, it seems these days. But this is the fifth commandment that Jesus gives. Sorry, Nate. 5.16. (laughs) If you could see that look he just gave me, it would have been worth a million dollars. Deuteronomy 5.16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. There's this interesting belief in in ancient Judaism about the Ten Commandments. I think many of us have seen the picture of Moses coming down with the two tablets. And the belief was that the two tablets divided the two commandments. That one of the tablets contained the commandments that dealt with Israel's relationship with God. And the other tablet dealt with Israel's relationship with each other. What's interesting about this is that in in uh, tradition, in Jewish tradition, this commandment, the fifth commandment, is actually on the tablet that deals with their relationship with God, not with each other. We're called to honor our parents here, and it's not like at a set age. Where you're called as children just to honor your parents. It's a general picture of honor your parents, honor your elders, no matter what the age. Because as we honor them, we begin to demonstrate our honor for our Father in Heaven. The idea in, in, in ancient Judaism was that if you can't honor, honor your parents, how are you going to honor God in Heaven above? And as we honor them, as we demonstrate our honor for God, God blesses us. Notice the promise. So that you may live long and it may go well with you. See, this call to honor, this call to obedience, has absolutely nothing to do with parental authority. But it has everything to do with God's authority. And so that's the angle that we need to look at this because sometimes we read this and we just think well Paul's just you know putting all these all these things on top of us all these pressures on top of us when in reality what this is is just another way of worshiping God following his authority Now what's most interesting about this is Paul does with this relationship between parents, and children, what he did with husband and wife. He begins to to change it slightly. See, there should be a difference in the way that those of us follow Christ relate to one another, especially how we as parents relate to our children. Notice what he says in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instructions of the Lord. Now, I don't think Paul's just talking to fathers here, okay? So mothers, you're, you're not off the hook on this one. I think he's talking to parents in general. And he has two directives here that are incredibly relevant to us today that we need to really grasp. First, he calls us not to exasperate our children. Now, some of your translations out there may say, don't provoke your children to anger. And that's how we kind of look at this, right? You know, Don't make your kids mad. And we read that, and we think, so what am I supposed to do? Because if I, if I tell my kids to wash the dishes, guess what? They're usually mad at me. Last night, when the snow was coming sideways, and my kids were warm and comfy in the house, and I said, hey, we've got to take the dogs out. Well, why don't you go take the dogs out? They weren't happy. They didn't look and say, oh, Father, it would be a joy to go out in this snowstorm. They looked at me and were like, Really? Really? It's warm in here. I don't want to go outside. So we read it, don't get our kids upset or mad, and don't force them to anger, and we kind of think, well, that kind of is stupid. Because, I don't know about your kids, but it seems at times, kids' default is like they're mad at us at all times. Especially when they get older. I think there's a better translation for this. To exasperate usually means to frustrate, to make something harsh or harsher, to make something more grievous. And as I was praying about this and thinking about this, the image that kept popping back into my mind was when I was younger and I was involved in sports. Any of you ever play sports as a kid? Maybe in high school? Any of you ever have one of those coaches? You know that coach, right? That coach who just seems to enjoy causing kids like incredible pain and discomfort. My son Ben tried out for a soccer team once and the coach had this belief that soccer players in general should run, be able to run, I think it was 11 miles in a game, which is probably true for maybe one or two positions. My son tried out for the goalie position, and right? I don't know if you've seen Ben. You know Ben's a larger man right now. He was a larger boy as well, and and he didn't necessarily run fast. And so you had to run this distance in 90 minutes to make the team. That was his one qualification. And I remember thinking about it like he's a goalie. A goalie runs like 10 feet. You know, A goalie doesn't run. He jumps. You know, but Ben wanted to play on this team, and so he did it. And he started to try to jog and run and get a little bit in better shape. and The day of the tryouts, they went and they ran. And everybody on the team was faster than Ben. And everyone's crossing the line, and there Ben is, and he's just huffing his way around. He's doing it. He's fighting it. And it's getting towards the end. And so we're almost at 90 minutes. Ben's on his last lap, and the coach is encouraging him. You know that kind of encouragement, you know, where it's more of a negative, you know, or you're a loser, you're not going to do this, da-da-da-da. He's pushing him, he's pushing him, and Ben finally crosses the line. He's exhausted, and the coach just, like, berates him for not, you know, I hope you're proud enough. You, you made the team, but you barely did it. What do you think of yourself now? And he looks at the coach, and he vomits all over him. <laughs> I thought it was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. I was so proud of my son. That's the picture that I have in my mind. You know, we have a way of speaking life into our children, and we have a way of speaking death into our children. And there's a difference, and I think that's what Paul is talking about here. We have a way to encourage, to see them grow, to see them flourish, and then we have a way to see them wither. And I think we've all been in relationships where we know where we've been withering and where we've been growing. And that's the challenge that I think Paul is doing or getting to us here. And I think the second directive explains why. Now remember, in the culture that Paul is living in, the parent had, the father had absolute authority. In many ways, it's so easy to abuse that authority. Paul says this in his second directive. Instead, bring them up in the training and instructions of the Lord. As Christian parents, our first and primary responsibility should be the the spiritual health and development of our children. It seems like our generation just believes that we can drop our kids off at kids' church, and our responsibility for raising our, spirit, our children in the faith is done. We treat children's church like school. The church will take care of it all. I know parents who shop youth groups, who shop children's churches. And I get it. I understand it. I've had kids. We, we had children before we went into the ministry. We've all done it. We want the best for our kids. But there seems to be the belief that that, that one hour, hour and a half, or, or our youth group is all our kids need. And they're going to grow up and flourish as believers when they become adults. And what we're discovering today is that didn't happen. There's a whole generation of kids who grew up in the last 20, 25 years who are leaving the church right now. You see, the the truth is, your kids watch you. Their faith is going to be based on two things. First of all, how you walk out your faith. How real is your faith every day of the week? Not just on Sunday morning, but, but Sunday afternoon all the way through Saturday. Are you walking out your faith? Are you living it? Is it really important? Or is church just something you go to? And then the second thing is they want to see how you live out your faith towards them. One of the hardest jobs as a kid, in my opinion, is being a pastor's kid. You guys have no idea what it, what it is like for kids who grow up in the church. We were, uh, I forgot where we were as a family gathering. All my kids are in their 20s now. They're all grown up. And they were joking about what life was like when we first got into ministry. How um, during the week sometimes VeggieTales would be their babysitter because we'd have work to do here. And they'd go into the nursery with Veggie Tales while we were meeting with people. How they learned really quickly that they had to be careful what they said in front of people because it could either come against them or come against us, how they were really guarded. You know, it makes kids bitter. And we knew that. We figured that out pretty early. And so we used to do things when our kids were little to, to kind of shelter them. Ah, shelter's the wrong word. To give them an out. And we talked about that. We joked with them We said, you remember when we used to go up to the Dells every year? We we homeschooled our kids, and so uh, we could vacation whenever we wanted to, and we would go up to the Kalahari, up in the dells, in the middle of February, middle of the week. Right now, if you have the ability, you can go up there, and it's dirt cheap. We used to get this massive room and free water passes, and we'd show up like Monday morning and leave like Thursday. And who want? Who's going to take their kids up there in the middle of school, in the middle of winter? Nobody. But they're open. And so we would take them up there, and you know what? They weren't pastor's kids. We'd go get pizza and bowl and do whatever, and it was affordable for us. Our kids, for some reason, really enjoyed, when they were younger, going to the soccer games. So we picked up season tickets, and people are looking at me like, well, why'd you do that? Because that was our way of getting away. We would go, and they could have fun, and they didn't have to be pastor's kids. And they saw how we interacted with some of the hooligans and still kept our faith. In the midst of it. So your kids are watching you. They're watching how you treat them, how you demonstrate faith to them, and how you speak Jesus into them. Your actions or your lack of action can have a detrimental effect on their faith. Now I'm going to say this with a caveat, okay? Parents are not the only influence on kids. And adult children, when it's all said and done, are responsible for their own faith. But we as parents also need to realize that we should do all we can to help nurture it. And that goes on. I'm learning that as my kids are in my 20s. That my job's not over yet. My job's not over. It's just changed. Now this next section, Paul deals with the relationships between slaves and masters. And this can be a really confusing section for us. Especially, you know, we live in a society where slavery has been abolished. So our knee-jerk reaction can be either, one, to dismiss this section as irrelevant today, we don't have slavery anymore, so we can just skip on to the armor of God, and that'll be fun. Or two, we can translate it into our workplace, but it doesn't translate as cleanly as we want it to be. I think there's relevance there, but I think we can better understand that relevance if we see it from Paul's perspective. Now Paul is living in a society where slavery is not just common, It's the engine that makes the entirety of society move and work. John Stott wrote this interesting description of first century slavery. He said this, Slavery seems to have been universal in the ancient world. A high percentage of the population were slaves. It has been computed that in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. They consisted um, they, they." um, Constituted the workforce that included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, such as doctors, teachers, administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased, acquired in the settlement of a bad debt, and prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Nobody, nobody queried or challenged the argument. The institution of slavery was a fact in the Mediterranean economic life, so completely accepted as part of the labor st- structure of the time, That one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. This unquestioning acceptance of the slave system explains why Plato, in his plan of the good life uh, described or depicted in his his, uh, writing of the Republic, did not need to mention the slave class. They were just simply there. This is the context that Paul's writing to. He's not trying to get rid of slavery, but instead he wants to redefine it. So notice what he says to the slaves in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor in their, eyes, uh, win their favor when their eyes are on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Paul's not only trying to redefine the role of the slave, but he's attempting to humanize them. See, A slave in in the ancient Near East was not a person. It was a thing. It was a thing to do what they wanted to with. But here, Paul is changing their role from slave almost to missionary. Notice what he says. Obey your earthly masters as you would obey Christ. Obey them as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God. Serve as if you were serving the Lord. It's almost like Paul is calling them to demonstrate God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy to those who are holding them captive. He paints this image of their lives becoming a witness. And why? Verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Remember, Jesus is coming back at any time. So take this opportunity to, to live in a way where you demonstrate Christ and you will be rewarded for it because you're acting as His missionary. This is a radical redefining of what and who being a slave is. Not only does He he redefine the role, but He's going to now redefine the role of Master as well. Look at what He says in verse 9. And Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that He who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. Treat your slaves the same way because they are servants of the Lord. Think about that for a second. How would you treat a fellow believer? How, How would you treat a missionary or a minister? That's what he's telling them to do here. Paul's not only humanizing them, he's also raising them up in the social hierarchy. And he places this high responsibility on the masters. Do not threaten them. I love this because their master is your master. That kind of puts things in like a new context all of a sudden. Remember you and them. They're, they're both we're all slaves of Christ. So how will Christ feel if you mistreat one of his servants? Think about that. He doesn't abolish it, he redefines it. And it's in those two, in that context, that these two passages become relevant to us today. Remember, I said, we may look, you may read these and, and may end up meaning something slightly different than you think. Because I think what Paul is talking about here is authority. And how do we live either with authority over us or with authority that's given to us? See, we hear a lot about authority in the church these days. Over the past several years, the church has been rocked with scandals, and they all kind of break down to an abuse of authority where people who were in positions of authority uh, abused, sexually harassed, or misused that authority in one way or another to the detriment of the people around them. See, unchecked power causes us to dehumanize those around us. See, when we dehumanize someone, it becomes so easy just to discard them. Think about the rhetoric that comes out of the political world these days, right? We're going to own the libs, or, or, or conservatives are fascists. What does that mean? It means they're not people anymore. They're just a class. We can just get rid of them, push them aside. We don't need them anymore. And when we get to that point, when we dehumanize the people around us, all of a sudden that authority goes to our head. We think we're God. And we treat people accordingly. I don't know if it was last summer or the summer before there was a podcast that came out that dealt with this large church out west that collapsed like fast because the pastor ran the church with absolute authority and all of a sudden there were just scandals all over the place and within what, two weeks the whole church collapsed. And I made my leadership team listen to it. And they kind of looked at me and like, why are we listening to this, Joe? We are not a church of multiple campuses and tens of thousands and I said because authority abuse can happen in a church of 10,000 and in a church of 20 actually happens quite often in a church of 20 we're at uh, we're at uh, network nations and there's a I think he's a retired professor now um, and he goes around and, for Network Nations, meets with a bunch of the churches, try to get them involved and things like that. And he pulled me aside and he goes, hey, there's this little church in town. I'm going to leave it at that in the community. He goes, he goes uh, such and such a church. He goes, yeah, go, I've heard. I know where they are. I've heard of them. I go, I knew a guy whose family. I looked at him and I go, that's kind of a family church, isn't it? You know what a family church, someone says that, what that means? That means that the church consists of a family. Like one family is the church. Uh, West Barrow Baptist, down, you know, the ones who protest everything, that's a family church. That's like one family. I go, isn't it kind of like a family church? He goes, yeah. He goes, it is. He goes, there's, there's a couple of people in the church who are very very strong personalities. That's the political correct way of, of saying things. And I go, yeah. I go, that's what I've heard. And he was kind of pushing me that we should go and minister to them. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. He goes, but they told me something interesting. And I said, well, what's that? He said, they said that they lost 30 people to moves in, in like six months. He goes, I've never heard of a church, even a big church, have 30 families move out simultaneously. And I said, well, maybe they weren't moving out of town. Maybe they're just moving to a different church. We create our little fiefdoms, our little places of authority. We like it, it's a drug. Paul is speaking to that in this place right here. See, these passages, both last week and this week, they should cause us to rethink how we view power and authority. In antiquity, the husband, the father, the master, had ultimate power. They could do whatever they want. They held the lives of those below them in their hands. And our sinful nature usually will cause us to take advantage of that. We have this attitude that the winner takes all. I earn this. I deserve it. When my kids were really little, we had a children's leader, children's director that taught my kids a song. could And so they were skipping around the church one morning singing, I'm the B- PK, you have to do what I say. Remember that, Teresa? Yeah. She wasn't the children's leader at the time. I think she was the stooge who told me about it. Now, they were like six, okay, so there's grace for that. Sarah, I don't think you were old enough to be skipping at the time. This was, yeah. But, but the thing is, as we become adults, we get that same attitude I'm the boss, you've got to do what I say. I'm the parent. You got to do what I say. I'm the husband. You got to do what I say. You see that? That's the way of the world. But that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is that of mutual submission, of thinking more highly of others than yourself, of loving both your neighbor and your enemy. And all of these three scenarios reinforce that picture. So, what does this mean for us today? Well, perhaps it means that we should respect and pray for those who have authority over us, that we should treat them in a way that would demonstrate Christ's love for them so that we can proclaim the gospel in our actions. And perhaps it means that we should treat those who, have, uh, who we have authority over in the same way, not as a means to an end, but as someone who needs to experience the love of Christ and we'll experience it, however we demonstrate it. Years ago, I was talking to a person, trying to invite them to church and get them uh, to know Jesus, and they told me, no, they've never stepped foot. And I said, why? And they said, because my boss is a professing Christian. And my boss lies and cheats and bemiddles, belittles everyone. I'm not going to step foot in the church if that's what a Christian does. You think your kids are watching you. Guess who else is watching you? See, that should make us all pause. That should make us all pause for a moment. We don't live in a time anymore where we think Jesus is coming back at any time, do we? We talk about it. Jesus is coming. But we make plans for 20 years down the road. We don't have that expectation. Pete Daniels, who's been floating in and out here, is coming to me and he's doing a lot of research of, of like the Jesus People movement and, and the early days of Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard. And he said, you know, as I'm listening to some of this stuff and reading some of this stuff, there's this realization that they really believed Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, when the Jesus People Revival was happening, that Jesus was coming back like any day. And so they organized their lives in such a way with that anticipation. So it was like, okay, why should I go to college? Jesus is coming back. I should go and preach the gospel to everyone. Because that was their priority. I'm not saying that we should live, well, maybe I am saying we should live that way. I'm not saying you should quit your jobs, but maybe we should begin to live our lives like Jesus might be coming back at any moment and there's a mission to be accomplished. We live in a time when we think our actions only affect ourselves. Isn't that the mantra today? I can do whatever I want, it just affects me, as long as I don't affect anyone else. Well, guess what? Your actions do affect other people because people are watching you. We live in a time where we think that the preaching of the gospel belongs to the professionals. Joe will do it. That's his job. We should hire a children's pastor. That'll be their job to take care of our kids. When are we getting a youth pastor? That's his job to take care of the youth. Perhaps it's because of all of that that we now live in a time where the faith seems to be shrinking here in the West. So maybe it's time to take some of what Paul says in these three sections a little bit more seriously. Perhaps we need to allow the kingdom to come and transform all of our relationships. Perhaps it's time to invite the Holy Spirit into our marriages, transforming them so that they actually become a prophetic image to the world of God's love for us of what mercy and grace looks like, of what Christ's sacrifice truly looks like. Perhaps it's time to invite the Holy Spirit into our families, transforming them not only to see uh, the faith move to the next generation, but so that our kids bring the Gospel to their generation to transform it. I, I read about what happened in the 60s and 70s And those kids, they were kids, guys. Some of them were younger than my kids. They were kids, and they turned the world upside down because they thought Jesus was coming. Perhaps it's time to invite the Holy Spirit into our workplaces, transforming them from a net-zero, winner-take-all environment to a place where the kingdom of God not only transforms them, but they become a place where kingdom ideas can transform the world. Could you imagine what would happen in your place of employment if the kingdom of God showed up there? Not only with your coworkers, could you imagine what would occur in the world? Could you imagine what would occur in Hollywood if the kingdom of God were to show up and some of these creatives got on fire for him? maybe we'd have something like the Chosen rolling out. That's not just being shown in churches, but seems to be going beyond that. Could you imagine what would happen if the Kingdom of God showed up in some of the musicians around us? In some of the authors around us? Could you imagine what would occur? They lived in a time where they thought Jesus was coming soon and there was an urgency. Maybe it's time we live the same way. Amen. Let's stand in prayer.